The Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Making the Most of Graduate School, a professional development seminar. Featuring advanced systems engineer for General Dynamics Mission Systems, Carla Carter. Lead program manager for General Motors, Dr. Thaddeus Irby. Talitha Washington from Howard University and Mechanical Engineering Section Chief for the Department of Defense, Hannah Wharton. Acclimating to a new environment or even a new process can be difficult. While pursuing an undergraduate degree presents its challenges, taking the next step to the advanced degree presents even more challenges. How can one navigate through the graduate school process as an early career graduate student? What are the tools needed for this transition? This seminar highlights the tools needed for the graduate school experience while addressing the factors that impact those experiences. This session also highlights the difficulties in STEM fields while discussing some solutions that can help to overcome the common challenges and hurdles that are usually encountered. Without further ado, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Making the Most of Graduate School, featuring Carla Carter, Dr. Thaddeus Irby, Talitha Washington, and Hannah Wharton. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Making the Most of Graduate School. Um, during the session, you'll be able to examine the necessary resources to help you navigate through graduate school process gain some tools needed for your transition from undergrad to graduate school, as well as tools needed for the actual graduate school experience and addressing factors that can impact those experiences. Um, my name is Hannah Wharton. I'll be your moderator today. Um, before we move forward, um, I wanna ask a few questions so we understand who our audience is. So how many of you are currently in graduate school? If you could raise your hand, okay. Um, and are you full-time or working part-time? Full-time, raise your hand. Working part-time? Okay. Um, are you taking online classes? Online? Okay. In class? Okay. Um, how many of you are in undergrad and planning to, going, to go to graduate school? Okay. All right. Um, so just wanna let you know that we want this to be an interactive session. We're not just gonna stay up here and talk at you. So please ask questions. And um, if you have comments or wanna share your experiences, please raise your hand and let us know um, so that we can uh, make this a very interactive session, okay? So All right. If you wanna ask us questions, <laughs> we're gonna ask you questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'll run through our agenda quickly um, before we get started and all right, so our agenda today, um, we're gonna go through our introductions and then um, we are going to have a discussion about our graduate school report. Um, we'll go through um, some real world examples our panelists will talk about. And um, then we actually have some interactive scenarios that uh, we wanna run through uh, with you all. And then after that, of course, um, we'll share some tips and then we'll leave about 15, 10 minutes um, to, uh, for questions and answers, okay? Sound good? 
All right, so I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I currently live in Ellicott City, Maryland. Um, I uh, work at the National Security Agency and um, I am a mechanical engineering manager um, for our facilities operations um, organization. And uh, prior to that, I worked at Baltimore Gas and Electric for four years as a project manager. So I did a lot of construction um, projects um, and uh, opened up roads and things like that. So um, that was fun. And prior to that, I started my mechanical engineering career at L3 Communications, Applied Signal and Image Technology. Um, and prior to that, I was at UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and I obtained my um, bachelor's in mechanical engineering there and then went straight into engineering management um, for my master's of science degree. So uh, I am a wife and a mother of a six-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. So I'm having lots of fun <laughs> these days. Um, and, uh, and that's it. So I will turn it over to our panelists so they can introduce themselves and then we will move forward. All right? Okay. All right, sounds good. Hi, uh, my name is Carla Carter. I'm an advanced systems engineer with General Dynamics Mission Systems out of McLeansville, North Carolina. It's just outside of Greensboro, if any of you are familiar with that area. Um, so essentially with uh, General Dynamics, I'm a test director of um, new product initiatives. Um, and basically I've been with the company for about four years now. Um, but really prior to that, I just kind of wanted to share with everyone how I started my career. Um, in high school, I was um, heavily involved in STEM programs and different competitions, and I just was always interested in math and science. So um, from that experience, I was able to move on to uh, Clark Atlanta University, where I majored in electrical engineering. I did lots of internships. I did lots of uh, research studies. And from that experience, I was able to get a job with uh, Marine Corps Systems Command out of Quantico, Virginia. There, I was a systems engineer and um, primarily focused on optics and non-lethal systems, you know, rifle-mounted uh, night vision equipment, helmet-mounted night vision equipment. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that experience. And uh, from there, um, I just kind of started uh, trying out new things, and I got involved with some NATO projects and really had a lot of success working with other different countries and going on travel to international events and experiences and working on standard NATO agreements. And from that, I had a lot of success and was able to transition into a project officer role where I was able to award um, a contract for day optics for $66 million. So at that point in time, I, I was really, you know, starting to garner some, some momentum. And I was really, you know, thinking, okay, I, I, can, I can do this. I can really, you know, be successful in STEM. And from that point, I began to apply for leadership positions as far as tech management roles. And unfortunately, at my first, um, first time out, I did not uh, become successful in, in gaining that role. And, you know, I was kind of bummed about it and, you know, really went back to my mentor to try to discuss it, say, hey, I, I've had all these great experiences. I've had a lot of success. What's, you know, what am I, what am I missing? And they were like, well, maybe it's uh, that extra degree. You know, maybe you need to go back to grad school and um, get your master's degree. And because a lot of times when uh, employers are looking at the field of applicants, they kind of whittle them down and, and education is a, a big part of that. So um, on a part-time basis, I enrolled at George Washington University and uh, earned my master's degree from there. And um, at that point in time, went back before the board and got a tech manager position. 
uh, within optics and non-lethal systems. So I had some success from uh, following my mentor's direction. And um, at that point, um, we decided to leave the uh, Washington DC area. And that's how we ended up down here in uh, the Greensboro area at, with General Dynamics. Now we'll move on to uh, Mr. Thaddeus, Dr. Thaddeus. Yes. <laughs> yes. During make business that hours, right, right. <laughs> business hours during. Um, Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Thaddeus Irby. I am currently a lead program manager within General Motors, specifically their Global Connected Customer Experience Department, where we develop two things there. We do their OnStar safety and security services, and we also do their connected experiences. So anything that connects the car to the phone or the car to the house, we want it to be a one seamless journey. Um, anything behind the SOS button in any GM vehicle, all the safety and security products and services. That's what my team works on and develops. Um, that's what I do during the day. During the after hours, I am also an adjunct professor at Wayne State University where I teach MBA classes um, focusing on two things. One of them is the Foundations Global Course that focuses on management and leadership in the 21st century. The other one is a capstone course which focuses on strategy in the 21st century. Um, I am also a, what I got up there? <laughs> I'm also an active member in 100 Black Men of Detroit. So I took an interesting road to get to where I am today. Um, right after high school, I discovered that I wanted no parts of college whatsoever. And I decided to take another route by joining the United States Air Force. So about a year into being what they call a signals intelligence analyst, um, I was stationed in England at the time. I realized that I should have went to school. I should have spent some more time thinking about what I wanted to do post high school. So I started taking classes over in uh, the University of Maryland, had a European division in England. So I started taking classes there for undergrad. Um, got out the Air Force after four years. They actually sent me to Maryland for my next duty station at Fort Meade. Actually, I was at NSA. So I did a short stint there and I uh, kept going with University of Maryland. Um, shortly after that, Lockheed Martin had called me once I had obtained my uh, bachelor's in business administration. Um, I said, all right, Lockheed, let's have some fun. I ended up staying with them for 11, almost 12 years. And during that entire time, I was working during the daytime and going to school at night. Um, master's degree with George Washington University. Uh, went back to University of Maryland to get my doctorate degree in management. So after all that was said and done, I was like, okay, what's next? Um, I spent a short while figuring that out, about two years roughly. Then I decided to go back home to Detroit. That's where I'm from, that's home. Um, then General Motors called me. And here I am today, and Wayne State probably called me like two months later. So I was like, all right, let's have some fun. I have a three and a half year old son named Aiden. Um, he's a, another spitting image of me, it's, it's crazy. He's up there. Um, that's who I am. Thank you. All right. And next is Talitha Washington. Dr. Talitha Washington. <laughs> Business hours. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm originally from Evansville, Indiana. And in, growing up in Indiana, it's a big engineering state. So I initially thought I was going to go to college and major in engineering. That was my initial major. I ended up going to Spelman. And then I learned we had a 3-2 program, probably similar to the one you did but I was a little bit more impatient. I didn't want to go to school for five years, three years at Spelman and two years somewhere else. So I said, okay, 
I want to pick the major where I don't have to, you know, take that much time. So engineering, then I had to figure out it's not going to be that. But then I did, I wanted to stay somehow close to engineering, but I didn't want to do the labs because I'm very clumsy and I figured it would take up too much of my time. So I ended up choosing the easy major of math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but fortunately, I was in an environment where, and, you know, when I came in my first semester, I tested into pre-Cal 2. So, you know, I was not the stellar student coming in, that sort of thing, more like a hard-headed student. And my junior year, well, I had to kind of fight my, my math department to do a study abroad. I studied abroad at Universidad Autónoma de Guadalajara in Mexico for a semester and I actually took uh, math courses in Spanish. And at that time, the whole global education thing as an undergrad didn't take off. But later on, it well suited me for what I do now, uh, which, so at, let me just back it up. At Spelman, uh, my advisor forced me to apply to graduate school. And so I did, note forced. And if they forced me to apply for a Packard fellowship, which I did, you know, Hewlett Packard, you know, Packard Foundation. Mm -hmm. So I got the Packard Fellowship. I got into graduate school. I was like, oh man. So then I called the graduate, it was the University of Connecticut, got into one. And I called them up. I said, I can only come if I get full funding. A week later, I had full funding. I said, okay, fine. I guess I'll go. <laughs> so I'm not the most um, traditionally oriented where, you know, nor I, would, I would think that normal people have normal plans, but, you know, sometimes things happen for a reason. And you know, fortunately, I had people around me to kind of see what I couldn't see in me and to push me beyond what I think I could do. So when I got to grad school, I was like, well, might as well just make the most of it. And it was hard. It was challenging, but it was also very rewarding. And currently right now, I'm an associate professor of mathematics at Howard University, and I'm on detail at the National Science Foundation, and I'm a co-lead of our new Hispanic Serving Institutions program. So it's kind of neat to kind of see the math come together with my previous study abroad experiences in a policymaking space, but also um, doing applied mathematics. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm going to be missed to say. And Thursday night, woohoo! I got the uh, STEM Innovator Award from Bea, and it was a huge honor to be recognized for my scholarly work. <laughs> All right, now Talitha is going to talk to us about how to find money for graduate school. Yeah, money's a thing, <laughs> right? So there are different ways to find money. So this is actually um, from a blog post from a friend of mine, is how do I find money for graduate school? You can never apply um, to too many places to ask for money. Um, many of the applications are similar but they have subtle differences. And if the applicant isn't aware of the subtle differences, it could make or break an application, just FYI. So the National Science Foundation has a graduate research fellowship program. Depending on the discipline will depend on the time it's due. And actually, if you, I'll be at the gala this evening and my coworker who actually works in the graduate fellowship program division will be here at the gala. So if you see me there with some guy, come talk to him. He has the hookup. Um, there's also the Ford Foundation Predoctoral Fellowship. Now, the Ford Foundation has a predoctoral post-dissertation um, phase, and they also have a one-year postdoctoral fellowship. I sat on the review um, panel reviewing applications for some time. In, in all honesty, it's amazing. If one just writes the references properly, does the spell check, 
make sure that all the boxes are checked by what they want and then ask somebody to read over their things, that can make or break. I mean, the bar, I mean, obviously the bar is high, but if you could just do those things, applications, it, they could be very successful in the end. Um, and there's also the National Physical Science Consortium. And at the bottom is the National Defense Science and Engineering Graduate Fellowship. But I would definitely say um, apply for the money, apply early and often. Even if you don't get it, what happens is those applications end up on the desks of people who are out in the field and your name will start to get out there. They'll say, oh, I remember they, we can't, you know, as a conflict of interest, we can't like share the applicant's data. However, I know who, who and what I've read, even though I'm not gonna tell that person. So by applying, you get your name out there and people start to take note of who you are and what you're doing, what you're about. All right, and now we are going to look at the population. So uh, one of the things is, one of the questions is why, why go to graduate school? Why even bother, right? And uh, well, what, what do the demographics look like in the field? Well, okay, so this is an NSF report. NSF puts this out every two years. So the one hopefully will be coming soon. Um, on the lower left is the US population in a pie chart. On the right is, are those working in science and engineering occupations. So if you look on the left, look at the US population, uh, let's say black males, they make up 6.1% of the US population, but black males make up only 3% of those working in science and engineering occupations. Now, if we look at Asian males, Asian males in the U.S. make up 2.7% of the U.S. population, but they make up 14% in the STEM and engineering occupations. So in the first case, we have what we call underrepresentation, and the latter would be overrepresentation. So whenever I, um, whenever I look at these pie charts, I'm always reminded that if, you know, and we know that the pie charts are moving, and as a nation, if we're not sure that, if we don't include everybody into these science and engineering fields, let's say, in the occupations, I think as a nation, we'll be in some trouble. So it's, it's a part of, you know, be that trailblazer, be that person, and you may be that one, and you may be that first, just because of how things have been in our country, but we've got to do it. This has to be us, it has to be you. This highlights the importance of events like BEA or NSB to minimize or eliminate these things called underrepresentation in the STEM field or any field in general. Um, it's important that we're out there getting represented, getting advice, mentoring, being mentored, people who've been there, done that, because these percentages, they're trending, sometimes in the wrong direction, but we can make a difference by supporting these type of events and telling others about them. And then the next pie chart mm -hmm. is, um, if you look, so when I went to graduate school, right, so I did a study abroad in Mexico, so I knew, I learned how to navigate a foreign space. When I went to graduate school, I was one of the U.S. citizens in the classroom, right, one of the few. I'm sitting next to this dude from China who already had, like, equivalent to PhD, wrote books, and I'm like, and this is my peer. I'm like, dang. But, you know, I just roped them in. They were my best friends. So, you know, so when you go to graduate school, what sort of environment? Who are you going to be your peers? Who's going to be your network, your cohort? On the left pie chart is we have a percentage distributed of masters, those in master's degree granting programs. So this report just came out. It's pretty, quite informative. So if you look, um, so blacks make up 2.2%. 2 
But note that that, uh, what is that, turquoise? I don't know what color that is, turquoise, a little yeah. turquoise, the turquoise mm -hmm. groups. The biggest slice there, those are non-U.S. residents, 58.1%. So those are earning masters. If you look on the right pie, that's doctoral degrees. Blacks make up 1.9% of those getting doctoral degrees in education, in engineering. And then non-U.S. is 57.9%. Mm -hmm. So when you go to graduate school, you may end up being the U.S. Uh, representative. When I went into graduate school, I had uh, one professor said, I didn't know black women majored in math. I'm like, really? I had another different professor, different time. He said, um, I haven't talked to a black person since 1960, whatever. And I said, I said, you know, it's about time you do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he was a great advocate. So you may end up going into an environment where you may have to educate other people on how to interact with you. So, and then this is just the last uh, piece on that. This is a report that came out from the National Academy of Sciences on graduate STEM education for the 21st century. So there's one talking, they have a slew of recommendations and the National Academy of Sciences, you know, started by Lincoln, that sort of thing, to inform our nation about what we should be doing. So this is a recommendation to ensure diverse, equitable, and inclusive environments. It says that the graduate STEM education enterprise should enable students of all backgrounds, including but not limited to racial and ethnic background, gender, stage of life, culture, socioeconomic status, disability, sexual orientation, gender identity, and nationality to succeed by implementing practices that create an equitable and inclusive institutional environment. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because you would think this is a no-brainer. We should be doing this. It may not be the case in all graduate programs because, I mean, they're making the recommendation for a reason. So you want to make sure that when you pick a graduate school, when you enter the graduate school, you want to really think about how do I best navigate that space? Because not all of those spaces are conducive to really equip students to succeed. It doesn't mean it's not doable. Some places may be more challenging than others. All right, and now we're going to move into our discussion about some relevant or um, relevant career or life experiences when it comes to graduate school. I mentioned earlier, um, I went to graduate school as a full-time employee. And um, as I was doing so, I was also serving as a NATO engineer, uh, supporting um, our armed forces on, on a joint level. So um, I wanted to kind of share, it's like, okay, how do you accomplish your career objectives and your course objectives while you're traveling internationally and, and you have this busy schedule? And um, you'll see these uh, four items come up quite a bit within the brief. Um, you have to have pre-planning, you have to have um, open communication, make sure you're utilizing tools, and um, make sure that you're taking care of your course load. So as far as the pre-planning part of it, you need to make sure that you've downloaded all of your files, you need to make sure that you're um, working on an almost accelerated level to ensure that you're going to fix everything that you need to do prior to your travel. So communicate with your um, your course, your teammates um, within a work environment, communicate with your classmates as well to let them know what your schedule will be and when you are available. Those are some, some pretty, pretty huge tenets. And then also as from a, a tools perspective, making sure that you just have everything accessible to you. Because when you, like let's say let's, one instance I had when I went to Australia, 
and I had meetings all day long, you know, and we're pretty much on an opposite schedule, you know, so the states are operating, you know, they're, they're in the morning, we're in the evening type of a deal. And, you know, internet access was spotty in, in our particular location. Luckily, I had planned ahead that, you know, all right, I'm, I'm going to have all of my work done and, and I'm going to kind of work through it and make sure that a lot of um, my portion of that particular project was already done ahead of time and utilize um, some of my colleagues' um, resources in order to submit my assignments. So those are just kind of the things that you have to kind of think about as you're you know, traveling while you're enrolled in school. And um, I know that uh, my colleagues kind of have a little bit experience of it as well. Thaddeus was um, also working as a full-time uh, employee. And um, it's, it's just one of those things that you're constantly having to work through. Um, so it, for some of the students that are out there um, that are currently in graduate programs, uh, are you having to travel or are you finding you know, conflicts with um, your work schedules? He's like, you're talking to me. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, because a lot of times, you know, as you're communicating with your coworkers and you're letting them know, okay, I'm enrolled in this program, you, you just have to be careful because sometimes people may look at it from a negative perspective. Oh, is this person going to be late with their assignments? Are, are there, you know, is their focus going to kind of be, you know, on different areas and they're not really doing a great job either one, one way or another, you know, are you doing a great job at work, but you're doing kind of a you know, lackluster job in school or, or vice versa. So, you know, that's something that I'll kind of encourage you to, to look for, yeah. All right, and we'll move forward and let Dr. Thaddeus talk about his experiences. Sure. So um, the first thing you need to do once you say, okay, should I or should I not go to grad school or you have an idea what you want to do, the first thing you really want to think about is and know that there is a stark difference between undergraduate and graduate school and postgraduate school. The rule of thumb I usually tell my students is, hey, every credit hour requires three hours of study. So if you're taking a three credit hour course, you need to be studying nine hours per week on that material. Here's the reason why. Your professors, like myself, Dr. Washington, we are not going to lecture you to death. We're not going to handhold you through every theory, term, practice assignment at all. We're going to throw a lot of material at you, tell you to go digest it, understand it, and we may or may not quiz you in a couple of weeks. And the quiz will not be fill in the blank. It will not be true or false. Maybe multiple choice, but it more than likely will be essay. A thorough, complete thought essay, not a two or three sentence essay. So just know that there is that much of a difference that you really need to be prepared for in graduate school. Postgraduate is 10 times worse. Um, that's all research-based. It's all you versus your uh, dissertation committee. And they are looking at it with a razor-sharp lens telling you, you're going to be told, no, this is trash. Start all over again. Go study some more. Go find some more research. So understand that that's the type of effort and dedication you're going to have to put into there. Um, the second item is finding money. I think that was very critical what Dr. Washington pointed about earlier about finding money. Mm -hmm. One of my goals when I started graduate school was like, I do not want to pay zero cents for it. Zero. I found a way to only finish all three degrees with $6,000 in debt. And that was my own fault mm -hmm. 
because I end up getting a C in statistics. <laughs> that is my kryptonite. So knowing that statistics was my weakness, um, and what I found the money was my job at the time, Lockheed Martin did tuition reimbursement. So I took advantage of that. Um, your United States military, all four branches, they give tuition reimbursement. So I milked that until I used all, every cent of the Montgomery GI Bill. There's tons of scholarships out there. There are tons of grants out there, which actually gets into the next bullet. And the conversation I had um, with one of the academic advisors at Wayne State, she's like, Thad, we have all these grants we're trying to give away, but people just don't apply on time. There's money sitting right here. Three, five, ten thousand dollars. People just are not applying. I'm like, okay, so what do you want to do? Look, we got to keep reminding them maybe we're not communicating effectively. But the thing you'll have to do is build a relationship with your academic advisor. Make that person your sponsor because they know the ins and outs of that university. They know all the professors, the ones that the students like and the ones that the students don't like. They know where the money is, they know how to give you leniency if you need some support from the university, make that person your sponsor, make them look after you, schedule regular meetings with that person, um, help them, work with them to help build out your academic roadmap. They'll tell you what classes to take, when, which professors to use, how it fits into your work schedule, all that stuff. Take advantage, because they're there, they lamb into me all the time saying, I wish, I wish, I wish more students would have relationships with me because I can help make their life easier in grad school and even post-grad. Would, um, would you, sorry to interrupt sure. you, would you agree that if um, your employer doesn't currently have a tuition reimbursement program, that you should still ask and seek um, for that help from your employer and maybe even give them um, a understanding of how it could benefit your job? Yes. So, so if they don't have it, ask, yes. right? <laughs> so here's the kicker. Most companies do not offer tuition reimbursement for postgraduate school degrees. Um, what I ended up doing with Lockheed Martin, I put together a business case that showed what current issues I saw in the corporation with their leadership training. And by funding and paying for this 65,000 plus doctoral degree, how I can flip what I learned and the research I learned to help them modify all of their management and leadership training. They bought into it. I was shocked actually. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how I managed to make it through and get that taken care of. So if they don't fund it, talk to them about it. The worst they can say is no or find another company that does. Mm -hmm. It's really that simple. And also just to piggyback onto that, um, a lot of uh, companies do have like kind of a small subset, um, a smaller program where they'll have a leadership initiative where you can join that program and get your um, graduate uh, education paid that way. So it may not be open to all of the employees, but um, if you just talk to your manager, make sure you have mentors, communicate with them to find out what opportunities or, or areas of funding that you can you know, utilize. Mm -hmm. So I'll be very brief on the next two parts. But um, reflecting on when I was a graduate school student, I was about in my mid to early 20s. I was trying to figure out how am I going to manage work, social life, and academics? Because I was not willing to compromise on the work in my social life. I liked happy hour too much. I liked traveling too much. It was like, how can I manage to study 18 hours per week and do all this other stuff? 
So that was one of the biggest struggles I had probably the first year because the first assignment I got, I got back a C and I was like, oh, this is, I'm not paying y'all this money. <laughs> I'm not gonna do it. So we gotta figure this out. So I had to up my hours of studying. I had to sacrifice and talk to some friends and family and say, hey, I can't go out this week, but once this semester ends, it's on. So that's how I did it. So what I did, uh, the tools I recommend you use, put together a to-do list, a daily to-do list. This is what I will accomplish this day in school. This is when I will go hang out with my family. This is when I'm gonna take my naps. This is my bedtime. And once the semester ends, all bets are off. So think about stuff like that. Um, the other one, now I'm on the flip side of this table, I sit back and I'm looking at a lot of my students and they come to me and say, hey, uh, how do I get an A out of this class? What do I need to do to get an A? I tell them first, number one, do not procrastinate. Do not wait till the day before the assignment is due to hit submit. I see it all the time because now in these online classes, you can see when people are submitting, you see 1150, 1152. <laughs> like, how are you turning this 10-page essay paper? I know you haven't started yet and you're doing it in one hour. So I give them actually extra mm -hmm. attention because of that. So you don't want to do that. Um, really what you want to do, if you want to be successful in grad school, you have to over-communicate with your professor. You have to be in touch with it. Hey, I won't do this because I have to work late. Can I ask for a one-day extension? If you ask me in advance, I'll probably say yes. Um, read the syllabus. That is like your guide. If something happens throughout the course that doesn't agree with what you went through, then you can say, hey, professor, uh, you said this was due on date X, but now you're saying it's due two days early. What's the problem? We need to get extensions on this assignment. That can happen. Talk with your professor about it. Read the syllabus. Understand what's in there. Read your chapters before class. That makes it a whole lot easier. And the last thing, study groups are critical. I have learned that the classes where people band together in groups are more successful than the students who decide to do it by themselves. And that could be applied in academia and also in your corporate America jobs. The more you have support, the more you are brainstorming with each other and collaborating with each other, the more successful you will be, bar none. It's, it's night and day, you can tell, you can see it a mile away. So take advantage of study groups, use them to your advantage, and, and you'll be successful. All right, now Talitha is gonna share some of her experiences. So when I went to um, the University of Connecticut, I really didn't know what I was getting into. Um, and, but I took the courses and I remember my first semester, I took two graduate courses and one of them I loved analysis. The other one, abstract algebra, I was like, what? No, this is too much, what's going on? So I, I actually pulled out the graduate student handbook and I saw that I could take six credits of undergraduate uh, mathematics courses and that would actually count towards my um, graduate work. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna do that. So the moral of the story is when you get into that hard place of I'm feeling overwhelmed, recognize it, you know, take some deep breaths, but then look for different options. Had I not said this is too much for me and taken those proactive steps about reading the policy, reading about what I could do, I probably would have tanked, you know, probably tanked miserably. But um, I was able to just read through it, adjust it, and then it was fine. Um, in my program, we had to pass what are called preliminary exams. Some people call them qualifying exams. This is for the PhD. Um, and so we had to take four and essentially pass them. 
And so there, it's in different content areas. So the first year I took two of them, I aced one, the other one mm -mm, didn't go so well. And so then the pressure was on because if you don't pass the exams, you're out. Like in three years, if you don't pass it, mm, they're out. And if you don't pass the exams, the professor's not gonna talk to you because it's a waste of their time to talk with somebody who may fail out of the program, right? It's kind of these, these harsh realities. However, when you come in as a graduate student, especially for um, PhD students, faculty, we are looking at, do we wanna work with that person? Do I, do I get along with them? Do they come to the seminars and colloquium? Are they engaged? Do they do well in class? Do they submit their you know, stuff on time? So we actually look at students when they come in, but typically we won't work with them until they get a little bit more seasoned. Um, and, but the second summer, me and this guy named Guy, he's from uh, Madagascar, and we would sit in the library all summer long and just got delirious off of, well, you know, math, right? But that just helped accountability. Sometimes we would talk, most of the time we wouldn't. And we would just sit there to hold each other accountable for just studying. And then, so that second year I passed all three of them. So it was fine. Um, then I had to figure out, well, who am I going to work with? Um, so the Joe McKenna, he worked on, the, you know, remember the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Washington State that oscillated and crashed in the sound? So he worked at, on developing mathematical models for describing that collapse and why it collapsed. We can talk about that later offline if anybody's interested. Uh, but Choi was working on mathematical biology. So I have an interest in applied mathematics. And so I was like, that's kind of cool looking at biological census systems. However, you know, but it's kind of like, well, how do I pick an advisor? Because if you, it, as a PhD student, your advisor could tank your PhD work. I've also known people whose advisor tanked their career later, but that's another story. So you want to have that good relationship at the beginning. And even if it's not a good personality match, to really work through that. And so um, it just so happened I got lucky that Choi was my um, dissertation advisor, guiding me through the research process. But when things got hard and life got crazy, you know, through reproduction and things of that nature, human nature, I suppose. <laughs> um, McKenna would always find these ways. I would talk with McKenna. So I had a mentor where I could say, I don't know what's going on. I remember one time I was in his office just bawling, going, this is just too hard. What am I doing? He, and he looked me in my eye and said, you can outwork the rest of them. So it wasn't skill. It wasn't talent. What I heard was, as long as I can just keep working, you'll be fine. And so that really just got me through the graduate program. So I was able to have both the mentor and then the research advisor in two different people. And typically you will not get those in, in the same places. And he talked about sponsor. Uh, McKenna, you know, he's Irish. And so he was never afraid to speak up, you know. And so he was definitely the sponsor that said, hey, you need to get here, you need to do this, you need to do that. And then Choi and I, we would focus more on the mathematical discourse and things. As a graduate student, I was a guest of the New England Board of Higher Education uh, Fellows, where they did a lot of professional development training. The training I see here at this conference but it also developed that cohort where I could talk with other people and then I would see them. And now as a professional, I still see the same people and we still have that same bond, you know? So it's great to be able to go through those cohort experiences as a graduate student, but then continue those relationships as a professional. One of the things that when I, well, when I entered into Connecticut, it was a new space, big school, got lost all the time, didn't know what I was doing, but I, I went, stumbled on the African-American Cultural Center because I knew I needed supports just to navigate the environment. And the person who ran the center was a Spelman grad. 
I was ecstatic because it was like a connection there on campus. So when you get into these new spaces, these new environments, seek out the supports. You can have hidden gems either in your cultural center. They also have counseling services. We had great health facilities, fantastic gym. You know, it's UConn basketball, right? It's kind of why I went there. But um, yeah, so find the supports on campus to make the experience work because no one, no one can do it alone and they have those supports for a reason. You're listening to Making the Most of Graduate School, a professional development seminar. Featuring Carla Carter, Dr. Thaddeus Irby, Talitha Washington, and Hannah Wharton. Brought to you by the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we stand at the intersection of America's future. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter. Oh yeah, just one more. And so then just kind of fast forward to present day. Um, now I, I have two teenagers and a young adult, right? Um, two high school, one sophomore in college, bottom up studying biology, engineering, and then computer science. And I was always that mom that brought their kids to work and things. And so it, it, being able to wrap in uh, mathematics and then the middle picture there, I'm standing by Elbert Frank Cox, who's the first black to earn a PhD in mathematics from my hometown didn't learn about until I was a grown-up, but, but just being able to be in the, the mathematical space, but then also to be a coach for my kids' uh, basketball team. Don't ask me if we won, because we probably didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and then also I'm on um, a number of boards in the professional societies to try to implement change and, and increase access. When I was a graduate student, I was stressed out, and one of my um, coworkers said, you are stressed. Maybe you need to go to the gym. So I was like, yeah, I'm stressed. And so now I've, since graduate school, I've been a, a gym junkie, aerobics junkie, and that just helps me just, you know, you got to find that space where you can just not be you, just, you know, let it go and have fun. On the lower right, um, I'm photoed there with, well, two graduates that day. Um, the guy there, he earned his PhD, and now he's doing, um, he's working at JP Morgan, working on cybersecurity machine learning. And then the other student, she actually went into bioinformatics program and was like, you know what? This after a semester, she said, this program is not for me. And I told her, I said, it is very courageous of you to say, this is not for me. I'm going to go find out what I want. So you could end up in a situation where you go to graduate school and you're like, this is not the fit. It doesn't mean that you're not cut out for graduate school. That just may not be your place. Mm -hmm. So always be looking for something that works for you. All right. So now we're gonna go into some interactive scenarios. So we're gonna want some, some more comments and questions from the audience here. So uh, we will move into our first scenario. All right, so this one is about sharing new skills gained during graduate school in a work environment. So I'll just read through this. Um, April obtained her MBA while working as a civil engineer at a design firm. She learned a lot about new software applications and process improvement during her graduate program that she believed would be valuable at her job. April set up a meeting with her manager to discuss her ideas and how the company could benefit from her new skills. During the meeting, she mentioned that she was interested in a leadership position that would allow her to implement her new ideas. Her manager liked her ideas, but wasn't sure how some of the other leaders would accept the change. 
So here we want to look at um, the change would be that April was if she was selected for this position and how she planned on implementing the new skills that she learned from graduate school. So I'll ask the panel here first and then I'll also open it up to the audience to ask questions or um, share some of your experiences. So if you were April, how would you um, handle the situation? So first I would um, look at the cost savings benefit of you know, implementing this new change, you know, like how is this going to benefit the company? And if they implement the change, you know, how much is it going to cost? And if you can prove that that particular situation that you're changing is going to bring them more money or save them a lot of money with very little, um, you know, upfront um, investment, I mean, that in itself is, is going to be, um, is going to help your cause and, and make April more successful. Anyone else want to chime in there? Yeah, I'll ask something. One of the things that I often tell my students, there's a specific chapter I focus on in each class. I dedicate an entire class to communication, listening, writing, and reading and speaking are the focus points of that chapter. Because I see a lot of times that people are, they write how they talk and the impacts of social media and text messaging have crippled people's ability to write better in a professional setting or in an academic setting. So we put, I put strong emphasis on saying, hey, this is how you need to communicate. Express your words in a complete thought. Write it out. That's on one leg. The other leg is communication can be done in means outside of meetings. And this is where it can be transferred back to corporate America. And if you think about, hey, why are we meeting all the time? Some of these things could be exchanged through a face-to-face -face conversation or, or an email if needed. I'm not a fan of emails, but emails if needed. If you can eliminate a meeting, which will save the company money by not having 10 people in a meeting, all of them cost $100 an hour, you multiply that together, now you have an $8,000 meeting for 30 minutes where nothing got resolved. So if you can transfer that, into a business case for a corporation by through the elimination or consolidation of meetings, I think you'll be successful. April would be successful. Mm -hmm. Any questions or comments from the audience? Any experiences you that you want to say wanna... something? Yeah. Oh, she is, sure. So I've noticed, mm -hmm. I've noticed that uh, my current position that there are certain people who want to have the leadership positions, but it's not time yet. So even if you have the want, you have the skills, you have the know-how, don't get your feelings hurt if it's not you yet, right? So I've seen people get hurt, but I'm like, no, you're still good. The second thing is most people will have the conversations one-on-one. -on -one. I don't know, I'm just gonna use by the water cooler, by the kitchen, by the whatever, just in the hallway, the informal one-on-ones to pitch new ideas, to see what people think about. You know, I have this idea, what do you think about it? Has anybody done something like this before? having those informal conversations before you really make the pitch of what you want and how your new ideas could shape the change. Because if, you, if people already know what you're thinking about and if you know what they're thinking about and what they value, you can make it, uh, it'll work better for you in the long run. So you can then have what you want and have their wants coalesce. All right, anyone wanna comment or share? Yeah, sure, go ahead. There's a microphone oh, right the there. microphone. We forgot about that. Sorry. 
Good afternoon, panel. Uh, my name is Will. I'm a mechanical engineer. I work for Huntington Eagles Industries <laughs> down at the Newport New Shipyard. I was wondering, let's say April, you know, after she gave her spiel about saving the company money and they really liked it and they told her, we'll give you the leadership position, but we won't raise your pay. What mm -hmm. should she do in that instance? That, that is the reality, yeah. right? Yeah, so um, some sometimes we're not always uh, compensated for <laughs> what we feel like we should be getting, you know. So that that is a um, a, a real situation there. Um, I would, if I were April, you know, I would still continue forward. You know, I would um, take over the leadership position because it's great experience, right? So you want to have that on your resume, and you you also want you're still building yourself within your career. Um, that's continuous. So I would still move forward with that. And then hopefully by the end of the year, you are successful. You know, you're gonna have to work really, really hard to make sure that this is successful. And maybe at the end of the, the peer review period, you know, or the, the performance assessment period, you can kind of come back and say, hey, listen, this, is, this thing is proven now. And, um, you know, I've, I've taken this leadership role. I've saved the company money. I've implemented positive change. You know, maybe um, at this point you, request the raise then. So, you know, you kind of show that, hey, I've proven myself and, and here's the money. Yeah. So that's what I would do. Any other questions or comments before we move to the? Yep, sure. I have a mm -hmm. question, but she also doesn't need to be in a leadership position to implement some of her new ideas. Mm -hmm. Like, um, she could just, you know, plug them in wherever she sees fit and kind of be a leader of her team where she is now mm -hmm. and then have that leadership shine through, you know, her normal job. And mm -hmm. then maybe then a leadership position can be made for yeah. her. So yeah, there's someone also would notice that work. That's excellent. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. Excellent point. Um, I think all companies mm -hmm. have um, some form of uh, continuous improvement or operational improvement staff or or um, tool that you can submit through so it is it is true that those are other opportunities where you can save the company money and also get some notoriety for yourself and some experience mm -hmm. uh, while doing so mm -hmm. good point anyone else okay we will move into our second scenario which is about navigating the relationships with advisors and or faculty so i'll read through this one Maxwell chose to work with Dr. Williams because of his interest in the cutting edge research area. Little did Maxwell know their personalities and working styles would clash. Maxwell earned excellent grades before graduate school and was really a really hard worker. His classmates would invite him to the cafe, but he often declined because of all the work he had to do. He wanted to make progress on his research, but he felt that he was just spinning his wheels. Maxwell became really frustrated and contemplated why he should be in graduate school. So panel, how would you handle the situation from the viewpoint of Maxwell's friends or even um, his professor independent of the situation? Talitha, you wanna start? So note that his colleagues, these are his colleagues. They're the people who you go to class with, those are your colleagues. They invited him out and he said no. I found that I find very valuable information, I don't know how you say this, but at the bar, right? <laughs> you know, at the happy hour. Sometimes it may be hard to juggle that with a basketball game or something like that, but by going to the happy hours, by going to the social events and really 
scheduling those in, even if I'm like, but I have to just, I find really bits of important information um, on either how to navigate the class, how to navigate a situation, stuff I just didn't know. And so by him saying no to that really puts a, him at a, a detriment and puts him in an isolated experience. So if I was next, I would say, hey, what am I, let me, let me just try. Let me at least reach out, reach out to my classmates and form a better social bond. Notice that Max also chose to work with Dr. Williams because of research interests. So oftentimes students will say, I wanna work with this professor because we have good research interests. And then they start talking and then you have a clash of personalities or the advisor could be a jerk, right? You know, you know, a lot of us professors are jerks. But so it's like, so, and so it's kind of like, you know, I, I've, you know, I mentored, I'm on um, dissertation committees of both students in math and physics and also in engineering, right? And so I hear it from all sides um, saying the professor, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm spinning my wheels. They're not telling me what to do. I'm not getting any feedback. They're not around. They're on sabbatical, they're not here. You know, how do I navigate? Got to be, be proactive. You know, what I found that with my, my um, PhD student, once I told him, make a timeline, how do you want to get this done? Because this isn't my research, this is yours. Now I'm going to put my name as co-author on our papers, right? But, you know, <laughs> yeah, we pimp out students. We do that. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But, you know, but it's like, you. this is your degree. This is your trajectory. How do you want to get this work done? And if the student doesn't take ownership and say, this is how I want to do it. This is how I want this to um, aid my professional experience later. This is how I want to define myself as a scientist. The student really has to do that on their own. They can ask questions, but they themselves have to figure out what do they want to do? How do they want to do it? And where will they end up later? And so once my student made that timeline, everything just flowed. So, one of the ideas is maybe Maxwell could approach the professor and say, I would, these are some of the things that I'm interested in. What do you think about this flow of timeline? How do you think I can get this done? Now, some professors can be receptive to that. I've had students approach their advisors and the advisor's like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, just really nonchalant. And so, you, but you, that same student, you just gotta be proactive and talk to different people because he said, uh, you have a dissertation committee of people. Um, so like, when you up through the masters, you take courses, you do the coursework, you get your grades, you're done, right? Mm -hmm. So when you get the PhD, the, it's the question, mainly by the dissertation committee, will this person be a good scientist? Will they contribute new knowledge? Where do I see this research going? Is their work valuable? So it's very much more subjective. It's much more wide. And I think in many ways more scary, right? Because you don't know but you get to learn the process by really just talking with the different people on your committee. How should I do this? But engaging people in the process and not doing it in isolation and just keep asking the questions. Mm -hmm. All right, any comments from the audience about this scenario, questions? And y'all can ask anything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Josh Giss. I'm a junior electrical engineer at Morgan State University. And I was actually hoping that we would come across this scenario because I'm trying to do my own research, but it's outside of my field of majors into global warming. And I was considering um, doing some research into it this semester in preparation for when I go to graduate school, I could find some valuable resources to um, help me really um, get more um, input on it and feedback. Okay, so what's your major? Um, electrical engineering. Great, great. So 
And this, this can happen, okay. I'm gonna give a different scenario. Sometimes people go to graduate school and they're like, I wanna study this area. And I wanna to go to this graduate school because they have this person here. They get there and that person's not there anymore. <laughs> or they get there and they don't get along and you know it doesn't happen. So what do you do if you have an interest and it's not aligned with the people in your department? Oh, Morgan okay. State is so that was cool. So Morgan, the great Morgan State, right? You know, <laughs> so Morgan State's big enough where you can look at different aspects of global warming. So you can look at it from the electrical engineering aspect, but you could also look at it from um, I don't know if you want to look at ocean, you know, the ocean, the weather, um, climate change, and different aspects. Um, you could look at it from a modeling aspect. So what are the different aspects you can look at with climate change and where are those people around your university, your department? So these interdisciplinary, so the, let me step back it up. The academy were very um, fragmented. Everybody's kind of in their own camp. But with these issues that are highly interdisciplinary, you as a student may need to be more proactive and go to different departments and say, I'm interested in this. Does anybody kind of have anything that's tangentially related to that? And it's almost like you kind of recruit people to work with you sort of thing. Okay. And another thing, well, just one more tidbit, as an undergraduate, you know, I'm hoping you're applying for the REUs. REUs is Research Experience for Undergraduates. So if you Google NSF and then REU, um, you'll find paid research experiences that you can participate in as an undergraduate, which would help kind of build that research repertoire so when you get later, you can tackle the projects and you have an idea. And you say it's called a REU or REU? REU. Research experience for undergraduates. Gotcha. And Morgan has a spiral program and it's interdisciplinary. So, and I can give you contacts at Morgan when we're done. I have friends there. Okay. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. And I'll briefly add like a 10 second spill onto that. Because I would see, no worries. But um, <laughs> I remember uh, my dissertation, it was focused around management because I looked at all three different generations that are in the workforce at this present time and what leadership behaviors best motivated them to perform or to not perform. I discovered that I had to step out of the management and business body of knowledge to understand more on human behavior because that's what it was all about. So I had to go to the psychology department and get smart on how humans behave and that there is a complex set of theories behind human behavior that we all must understand, especially if you're a manager or if especially you're a student that want to dive into those things that go across more than one discipline. Mm -hmm. Good point. All right, I think we had another common question. Um, I was going to ask, uh, is it taboo to change your advisor? Um, I'm not yet in grad school. I work at Boeing and uh, one of my plan is to become is to go into academia. So um, I definitely want to get a PhD. And I don't know if if you know if if there are, if my personality clashes with my advisor, is it weird or normal to change your advisor? Hmm. I, so personality things are going to happen, right? Your advisor may have. So, okay, let me back it up. How do you shop for an advisor, right? Just like you shop for clothes, right? You want to look at um, the students the advisor has. Like if the students that the advisor has, if they're like all strung out and oh my gosh, they're in the lab, they're all just, you know, discombobulated. They don't know what's going on. They just like, you know, that may not be what you want. 
So you want to talk with their current students. How's the work going? You know, are you making progress? Are they graduating PhD students? That sort of thing, right? And so you kind of want to know beforehand what you get into. Um, you can get into programs. Do you want to change advisors? Um, usually, usually people who, if they don't work well with an advisor, faculty are a little bit, we're a cohesive unit, even though we fight all the time, right? So usually if it's not going to work out, usually change schools. And people have done that where um, by, I don't, maybe the personality with that person just came across as something that wasn't good or what, I don't know, or vice versa. And they just had to, got a master's and I'm like, I got to change schools, this is not the place for me. So typically people don't change advisors. So you really want to um, do your research and talk to their students, talk to what, you know, have that conversation before committing, don't commit to one advisor like that, I'm working with you. Yeah, 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 we're gonna do these things. And then I'm talking to Carla next week. It'll be like, Carla, yeah, I'm really interested in that. Yeah, yeah, that's, don't do that. You know, just make it very clear. I'm interested, I'm considering, I don't know. Just say, I don't know. I would rather have a student just come up to me and say, I really don't know. What are you working on? If I were to work with you, hypothetically, what would you have me do and what would that look like? So I would want to have I would want to have that conversation with the student before they would take me on because then I know what they're getting into. And also I as an advisor have to say yes, because it's an investment of my time. And I'm thinking, you know, is this person gonna do their job? Are they gonna, you know, publish my papers? Are they gonna get my work done? You know, right? So I'm thinking it from that that capacity. But typically, unless there's a, an extreme circumstance, sometimes it does happen where people change advisors typically no, but that doesn't mean you can't get help from other people. But like if that has a student, I'm not touching that student. So there's a bit of ownership that will happen as well, right? But I can talk with that student and say, look, you got to put all that through him. This is, you know, but I can give you what happens in my scenario. So I'll, I'll mentor and I'll give advice and, you know, my opinions for what it's worth, but it really is the relationship between you and your advisor. But pick them wisely, very, very wisely. Okay. All right. So we're going to move into um, sharing some tips with you all. If we have time at the end, I want to make sure I leave some time for some questions. Um, we can come back to the third scenario. But for now, let's go into some tips. And um, Carla's up. Sure. So uh, again, I have four points that I wanted to share with you as far as um, becoming a successful graduate student. Um, you want to make sure that uh, you have the financing in place. You know, that's a, a very key thing that a lot of people kind of overlook. I actually had a class where I was um, a part of a, a research group where one of the students actually did not have their financing in place and we didn't find out until weeks later, you know, that um, he was going to be withdrawing. So at that point we were kind of hamstringed and, you know, without that extra person to move forward within our, our project. So if you have your financing in place, that's a, that's a huge thing. As we mentioned earlier, you can go to your employer and uh, find out what type of um, financing programs they have. Usually a tuition reimbursement uh, program is in place on some level. Uh, the other thing is networking. You, you heard uh, my colleagues talk about this earlier, making sure that you know, when you're taking classes, see if there's a cohort. You know, are there a group of people from your, um, your location or from your company that are taking classes? Sign up together and work together to kind of, um, you know, just get garnered that success. 
another thing is um, it, kind of like going back to the communication piece, making sure that your leadership and your team know um, at your work site that, hey, I am enrolled in graduate school, but um, my schedule will be these set hours and I will be able to work outside of them um, in order to support whatever um, projects or programs you have going on at the time. And then the other thing is um, just resources. Uh, one thing that I will say from graduate school, you wanna hold on to whatever lessons that you've learned, whatever materials that you've gained and collected throughout your matriculation, making sure that um, that's something that you can go back to at a later date to kind of harness and implement within your work environment. So these are just some tips here. Actively seek out support. When things get hard, when you're like, why am I doing this, why am I here? look for support, you know, I'll reach out to your friends, tell me why I'm doing this again. I've been in that situation, this is hard, I'm stressed out, I'm tired, you know, kids don't sleep, I don't sleep. Why am I doing this? You know, so you wanna have people around you to remind you, you're doing this because you can do this and this is why, you're a good person. So make sure you really have that close support network um, and also maintain your well-being, right? Yet you're a well peace of mind, um, like I said, I do exercise as a, a point of just kind of letting my hair down, so to speak, and jump around like a maniac. I find joy in that. Some people find joy in knitting, some people fishing, some people rock climbing, some people, you know, so you want to have that thing that's yours that you can kind of rejuvenate and recharge. Whatever that is, it could be sleeping. I don't know. But you want to have a space that you create where you know I can recharge if I do this and create study groups. Study groups just don't happen. You just don't fall into them. You really have to actively create them and say, hey, what you doing after class? Oh, you're not doing anything? We're gonna do this over here, you know? And so either that or course people to study with you, some kind of way, but create the study groups and develop your own reasonable timelines. So some students will want to go like really quickly where it's like, this is gonna take a little bit more time. So sometimes you have to pace out and go slower just because of the depth of the work or sometimes it's faster. So develop some timelines, know the expectations that you want out of yourself and also the expectation your advisor wants out of you and expand your network, right? So we talked about that. Be receptive to feedback, but not all feedback is good feedback. So you're asking about the two professors, right? So I'm not gonna say this would ever happen. I just give the gloom and doom, okay? That's what I give. So <laughs> <laughs> let's say um, Thaddeus has, that has a student, right? and I'm a hater, we don't get along, right? And so that students come to me and be like, oh, he's making me work and blah, blah, blah. I might give bad advice to that student. That student may have absolutely no idea that we have this, we have beef or whatever, right? You know. So you have to be careful about who you get your advice from, what the advice is, and is this good advice or is this bad advice? So you really just need, need to have that filter and make sure you always get a couple of data points so you can compare. Is this what I really should be doing? You know, and use the graduate students, especially the older ones who've navigated successfully through on, how do I make it through this? What, what do I have to do? And um, attend seminars and colloquiums. Often on times on campus, we'll have research seminars where people give talks, attend. People notice when you're there, they notice when you're not. Um, like at Howard, we have a research day. We, we expect students to go, we expect, expect students to present, even if it's more work, you know, you put it on your CV or resume or what have you, but you wanna actually do that extra, even if you don't get monetarily compensated instantaneously, but it's an investment in your future. And participate in conferences and workshops such as Awesome Bea, and work through failure. So, you know, 
I, I don't think there's anybody up here who hasn't failed at one point in time. Paper gets rejected. Your advisor looks at like, what the, what is that? Like, what, what kind of crap you, you know, like, ah. you know, so just kind of work through it. Okay, I need to make this better. I got to do this, you know, and you'll have your successes too, but work through your successes, work through your failure, and then learn from that and just keep growing and keep going. So one thing I always tell everybody in general in life, before you do anything, before you enroll in grad school, before you take the next job assignment, before you do anything, figure out what your why is, meaning what is your life roadmap? Whose career or profession do I want to fall in five or 10 years from now? And what skills are required to obtain that position? or that entrepreneur field that I want to get into? Do I even need a master's degree for it? Do I need a PhD for it? What, what is required? And if a master's degree is required for it, it says, okay, this is what I want to do. Let me go line this up. Let me go find this money and let me go do it. I want to go get it. So the first step before you do anything is build out that life roadmap and, and understand what it's going to take to get from today to five years from now. It may or may not include a master's degree. That is up for you to decide and based on who is in that position presently and what they recommend. The other thing I tell people to do is also to schedule those distractions, schedule those rewards. You need some downtime. You're going to get stressed out. You're going to get burnt out. It's, it's just going to happen and, and you're going to want to quit. The professor's going to get tell you no. They go, you might get an F, you might get a C, you might have to pay back $6,000 like I did. It's just going to just tear you apart. And so schedule those distractions, go to the gym, um, take a vacation, uh, go out on a date, do something, um, schedule these rewards. For every A I get, I'm gonna go buy the next pair of Jordans. <laughs> For every A, every time I get A plus, I wanna go buy a purse. Schedule those, have that motivation, set that up inside of you to the point where he says, all right, let's give you that extra kick to get through it because you're gonna need that self-motivation to keep you going. And if you don't get it, don't reward yourself. Um, I also tell everyone to be focused on the task that's in front of you. Whatever these school assignments you have in front of you, focus on that assignment solely and nothing else. Because in the syllabus, you're going to see probably 10 or 12 different assignments that are going to blow your mind. Because the professor may have a page worth of description in it. And you'll be like, what is all this mess? Only worry about the one that's in front of you. Focus on the 24 hours that's in front of you and nail it. Then you move on to the next hardest or next assignment. Um, use a calendar. I talked about that earlier. I live and die by my calendar. If it dies, I'm screwed. Um, have a checklist. All right, I did this. I did this. I did this part of the assignment. What's next? Because one of the things I struggle with too in a lot of my assignments I give students, I give them a checklist worth of things to do. I spell it out clear as day. Have this on your paper, include these three topics in your paper, include these two things in your paper. And somehow or another, they miss it. I'm like, how did you miss this? I put it right here in plain English. So have that checklist. All right, I wrote this, check mark. I wrote this, check mark. I researched this, check mark. My references are in APA format, check mark. I'm good. I covered the minimum viable assignment requirements. Um, sleep. That is critical too. Get a good night's sleep, especially the day before an exam. You want to get rest. You don't want to burn yourself out because after a while, everything will start to look the same. You're not clearly thinking. Just keep that in mind. And the last thing is build a team. Um, 
one of the things that you all should definitely be aware of is there are stages of team development. Like let's say you form the study group that Dr. Washington talked about. You're going to go through these series of, it's, it's actually a, a management theory topic, five stages of team development. The first stage is forming, the second stage is norming, storming, the third stage is norming, then performing and adjourning. Um, Keep in mind that that first stage is gonna be rough. Everybody's trying to figure out their role. Who are you? Why do I need to work with you? What's important? What are you good at? What are you not good at? The second stage is where all the conflict arise and everybody's trying to jockey for position. People with personalities are starting to come into play. Mm -hmm. Diversity is starting to come into play because some people's life experiences are different from yours. So they have a different outlook on things than you do. So it's critical when you're forming a team that you come to a common agreement of how we're going to operate together. Mm -hmm. I make a lot of my students in their group assignments create charters so they can come up with schedules, mm -hmm. so they can come up with conflict resolution, so they can come up with how we're going to meet and where we're going to meet and how we're going to meet, what tools we're going to use, and escalation procedures to me if something falls apart. And that way, as I said, the minimum, the baseline is set. So now we can go perform, now we can go execute. Everybody knows their role, everybody knows their responsibility, and then we're good. That's something that definitely applies in academia, and you can definitely transfer that over to your jobs. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, what is our charter? Why are we here? Why do we exist? Have that in place, then you'll be successful. Use that team to network. They know a group of people that you may not know. They can build bridges that you may not be able to build. They are probably better at some things than you are. So that team can carry you on from the first day of grad school to the last day of grad school. Keep that in mind. And that's it. <laughs> and thank you for bringing up the team conflict because that was what our, our uh, uh, third scenario was about. So he gave you some tips on that. So we'll, we have like two minutes left. So we'll open it up for some more questions from the audience. All right. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Justin King, I go, go to Alfred State College, and uh, right now I'm in electrical engineering technologies, and I'm wondering if I should go for a master's, or if I should change my uh, degree to just straight electrical engineering to be, just to be taken more seriously as a engineer. So, that gets to the first tip I left. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Build that life roadmap. Mm. What's, what's required? What are you, what is the end state? What is the position you're ultimately seeking? I'm not sure. <laughs> That's step one. Okay. You figure that out and then you'll be able to understand what degree, if any, on a master's degree level is required. But also know that the bar is always set higher for minorities. Mm -hmm. So you may need to go for both. Yes. Mm -hmm. You may need to go for a PhD. You may need to get additional certifications on top of that. So you may need to take an additional steps above and beyond what your life roadmap outlines. Okay, thank you. No problem. Here again, I might as well introduce myself. No so my yeah. name is Michelle Warren. I am an electrical engineer at the Boeing Company. I work in Boeing Research and Technology and I work with uh, autonomous systems and uh, I have an interest in AI and machine learning. Um, and so my question to you guys is, do you kind of lean towards one or the other, towards working while um, getting going for your PhD or towards going for your PhD full time 
I know that there are a lot of opportunities for black people and for black women to get funding to go and do uh, PhDs full time. So then I'm thinking, okay, well, I could, you know, just rely on the monies that I get from school. But then how does, I don't know, I just kind of want to know you guys' opinion, what you think. So we've had, so note that as a, as a graduate student, you know, it's your, your salary, probably what you're getting now, it'll be cut drastically. Yeah. So there'll be, if you were to go to the graduate school full time, you're going to have to do a salary adjustment, severe, um, severe salary adjustment. We're talking, what was the amount? Maybe 26,000, 20, 20, and we're talking low 20s you're going to live on, right? Huh. Yeah, you see the face right there? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I think as a graduate student, I got 20,000. Um, I got, tuition was waived, so I don't pay tuition. Mm -hmm. And at Connecticut, we got life insurance. Right. So you want to look into, but we're only talking 20 grand a year, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Your heart's beats. Mm -hmm. I'm a mathematician. We're used to be broke. <laughs> so, so you want to look at, so there's an economic consideration. Can I afford it? Can I, should I put, do I, and is this what I want to do? Do I want to go to work full time? I mean, do I want to just do the graduate school full time, do a research, get a fellowship, that sort of thing. That's one way to go. Another people do work and they do the graduate work, but then there's an understanding between the employer and then also the graduate program and the advisor, right? So there's some juggling there, but you just have to make sure everybody kind of has an MOU-ish idea of what's expected. So you're not going to work full-time and you, you may, you know, you may have to cut back or, or bring up, but I do know people that have worked at least at, at like an NSA and they still got PhD in math from our department. We have people who work in the CIA. CIA also has um, graduate fellowships and they work in the engineering. And so there are different ways you can do it. it and it really, it's up to you how you want to navigate it and also the financial piece as well, depending on where that is. And that kind of goes back to um, what uh, my colleagues were also saying earlier is that, you know, um, check with Boeing, see what type of programs they have available. Will they make something um, for you? You know, is there something that, that you can kind of convince them to carve out for you in order for you to continue your work, but also primarily focus most of your attention on your PhD? They may invest in you on that level. So, you know, that's an, an opportunity there. And if you're, the current work actually is, could synergize with your research work. Yeah. I mm -hmm. think that would be phenomenal. I mean, because there are AI and ML programs in in the area that you could do. So, you know, so that that may be an easier sell versus I'm doing this in my research and this on the job. I think that may be a little bit harder to negotiate. Right. Yeah. Right. So. All right. Well, we have run out of time, folks. <laughs> um, I'm sure if you guys have any additional questions. Um, the panelists will be open to taking some. Um, I'm not sure. I believe this is the last class of the like conference. Yeah. So thank you all yeah, for joining for us yeah. and leaving a little bit left for us at the end. We appreciate that. Um, so uh, thank you again. I hope you uh, have gathered a lot of information from this session and um, we will all wish you well on behalf of myself and the panelists. Thank yeah. you for attending. And uh, please consider uh, General Dynamics uh, for your future <laughs> career opportunities. Um, we are hiring interns and um, engineers on all levels, so I'll throw that out. That's good. I love it. That's a good one. That was a good one. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Making the Most of Graduate School, a professional development seminar. Featuring Advanced Systems Engineer for General Dynamics Mission Systems, Carla Carter. Lead Program Manager for General Motors, Dr. Thaddeus Irby. Talitha Washington from Howard University and Mechanical Engineering Section Chief for the Department of Defense, Hannah Wharton. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.baya.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.